0: Hope everyone had a nice time over Christmas. I know I know, we did in our house. The thing I love about Christmas, you know, obviously there's, there's the real meaning of Christmas, which is never to be lost, but the stuff around Christmas can also be quite enjoyable as well. I like all the uh, all the different, uh, what's the word? What's the word I've written down here? Traditions. How did that word drop out of my head? I love all the different Christmas traditions. So you, you pull a Christmas tree out, you decorate it, you have a little glass of mulled wine. Uh, Me in my family, in the Brown family, what we do every Christmas Eve, we all go up to Ruffin Castle. But nice little castle, we have a hot chocolate and we do Secret Santa. We always get ridiculous presents for each other. Uh, I can't even remember what I got this year, but Laura will tell me at some point. It was very good and I appreciate it a lot. (laughs) Maybe if we can just take that out of the recording. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, We also go ice skating every year, which is great. I mean, it's a relatively new tradition, but I do love it. Uh, but my favourite part of, of the stuff around Christmas is all the Christmas movies. There's one movie that I like to watch every year if I can, and that is Muppet Christmas Carol, the greatest Christmas movie ever made. I will hear no argument. I'm standing up here with a mic, so you are not allowed to disagree. Uh, so for those of you who don't know Muppet Christmas Carol, it is, it's a Christmas carol the story by Charles Dickinson, uh, about a man called Ebenezer Scrooge. He's not a particularly nice man, but it turns out he is a nice man. He's just a product of his past, and he needs to look to the future and live in the... It's a great film. Watch it. It's very good. This morning, though, I'm going to talk about a different Ebenezer. Uh, This Ebenezer is part of the Jewish tradition. So, in the Jewish Old Testament... What you got quite a lot of was when there were significant moments in the, the history of, the, of, the, of the, the Jewish people, they would plant stones. They would put stones in the ground. So Jacob, when he had the vision of, of the ladder up to heaven, he planted a stone in the ground, and he said, this place will be called Bethel. And it's, it's a reminder that this is where God came to earth, and this place is sacred. Um, there was One of those stones was called Ebenezer. What we're going to do is dive into the scripture at this point. So we're going to be going to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Um, Just a little bit of background for this so it makes sense to you. So the Jews have come out of of, uh, Egypt. Uh, God's brought them out. They went into the desert. It's a 40-day journey from one side of the desert to where the Promised Land is. But you know what people are like. We don't need 40 days to mess things up. So they got into idol worship and all sorts of stuff fell out of favour with God, so God kept them walking around in the desert for 40 years. That is before Joshua takes them into the promised land where everything's great for a while, but again, they fall back into sin. Idolatry starts happening. Um, what's happened just before the part we're about to read now is the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. It's, <coughs> the Philistines take it back to their homeland. It does them no good at all because God was not, It wasn't his will to really dwell with the Philistines, so he caused them all sorts of problems. They sent it back, and that's where we're at now. So we have Israel who are in sin and in need of repentance. So, 1 Samuel 7, and where are we now? We'll start at verse 2. Uh, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites... If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the ashtaroth, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtaroths, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Now, Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. So all of Israel was, at this point, repenting before God, and the Philistines heard about it and they thought, right, we're going to crush these guys now while they're all together. So when the Philistines heard, the, uh, blah, 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 the rulers of Philistine came up to attack them. Blah, blah, blah is not in my translation, just so you know. Um, when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Now the Philistines vastly outnumbered them. They had way better armor. They actually, they had chariots, which were like the tank of the day. So they were right to be scared at this point. Uh, they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling of lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. Here's where it gets interesting. <clears throat> but that day... The Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to the point below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. Woohoo! So, the key verse here. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So, the Israelites, despite being outmanned, outgunned, and out of their own land, because the Philistines Philistines had come in and they'd taken it from them, despite all of that, God delivered a definitive and ongoing, lasting victory for this repentant nation. He didn't just give them victory that day. After that day, it says they went on to reclaim their land and liberate the area around, which is amazing. Like, no wonder he put a stone in the ground. That's pretty, that's pretty special. So the, the reason he planted this stone, though, is because, as people, our nature is to look inwards, In good times and bad times, I don't know about you, but certainly what I experience, I have to force myself to to sometimes say, actually, no, get out of your own head, Dave. God's got this." So the purpose of this stone is to help direct the attention of God's people where it belongs. So where do we look naturally? Like I say, we look into ourselves. If you look on Facebook, for example... You won't have to scroll very long before you come across like a picture of a a mountain scene with a nice soft glow on it, saying, I'm the hero of my own story. Or, in order to succeed, you've got to believe in yourself. These are the kind of things that that, that our human nature throw at us all the time. You know, a bunch of cute kittens and something saying how, you know, you need to stop wishing and start saying, I will. I hate all that kind of stuff, but it's, it's everywhere. Because it's in our nature. We have whole industries devoted to self-help books, you know, to, to self-actualization, self-reliance, telling us that the only way to be really happy is to not need anyone for anything. Or on the other, the other side of it, which is still inward-looking, you have people who are like Western, Eastern philosophers like Deepak Chopra, who says, the, the only way to get everything you ever wanted is to have a completely empty brain and breathe in a very special way. And I'm not even joking. When, when you st- I've seen interviews with him, and that's literally his key to life. There's a special breathing technique and an empty mind. I'm leaving that there. I'm halfway there, that's all I'm saying. And it's not the breathing <laughs> technique. Uh, but yeah, either way, whether we're trying to push ourselves out, which is ironically putting ourselves in it, saying we are in control, so we have to push ourselves out, or whether we're trying to make ourselves the focus of everything, we are ruling God out of the equation. That never ends well. And as Christians, we do this too. If we, if we just think back over our Galatians series, the whole thing in Galatians is, you can't do it, only God's grace can. That's, that's Galatians in a nutshell. So this is not just something I'm saying that is a danger for the world. This is a danger in the church as well. And we need to be on the lookout for it. We don't want to be slow to seek God. Or slow to recognize his hand in our life. We don't want to be those people who confess God with our mouth but deny him with our lives. So that was the the meaning of the stone. The meaning of the stone was to direct people's attention to God. Now, they could have, if Joshua hadn't put that stone, I can see exactly what would have happened. The people of Israel would have said, well, we won that battle because uh, we had Johnny Two Swords cutting through people like a ninja, or we had, you know, Phil with his big spear. I swear, he threw it about 70 meters and took out five chariots. You know, that's what would have happened. We'd have said, we'd have said stuff like that, or they'd have said, oh, well, the Philistines must have been on the ale the night before because they were not up to scratch, they were bumbling around, they weren't thinking straight, they were really slow, like dull swords, that's why we won. Or maybe they'd have gone, well, there was that crazy thunder. Uh, but, you know, freak weather conditions happen. Uh, you know, there's just some crazy thunder, and, and that's how we, we managed to just kind of, we weren't distracted by it, but they were. Which is all nonsense. But that's, that's our nature, is, is to kind of forget about God, and try and figure out where we sit in all this. Thankfully, Joshua knew better. Hence, he placed the stone, and as he did, he said, thus far the Lord has brought us. Now, that's a significant phrase. Thus far the Lord has brought us. So this stone served three main purposes. The first was to direct us, and to direct the Israelites, up to look up towards God. Thus far, the Lord has brought us. A reminder that God is here. That God is present in the here and now. The Lord has brought us this far. That's, that's, that's how Spurgeon says. He says, says, don't just say, thus far the Lord has brought us. Say, thus far the Lord has brought us. This is not just a story about the Israelites, this is about us now as well. Who can sit here this morning saying you are here for any other reason than God brought you here? Why would you be sat in this room on a Sunday morning when you could be at home asleep (laughs) if it weren't for God, the grace of God, the salvation that comes with that? None of us. But who are we looking up to? That's an important question. Like God is, is a word that can mean a lot of different things depending on your, your kind of your idea of who God is. Well, we are blessed. And so are the Israelites. In that they had scriptures, not as much as us, but we have a whole Bible full of Ebenezer. This, this is our stone of remembrance. This helps point us towards God. This tells us who he is and how he interacts, that he is unchanging. This is amazing. This is the most valuable thing you will ever own. It reminds us of the acts, the things that God does, and who he is. And we should be looking up to him daily. In good times, so when we win battles, fantastic, give God the glory. And in hard times too, give God the glory. We're compelled to do so by the Bible. 1 Chronicles 16.11 says, Look to the Lord and his strength, seek his face always. Not sometimes, not when you feel like it, not when it's good, always. Always. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Psalm 34.10, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Ace! That's great news. That's great news. Now, Rabbi Zacharias, I don't know if if many are aware of, of Rabbi Zacharias. Great guy. Incredible writer, apologist, preacher. Um, stop messing with that, name. Uh, he tells this story. He tells a story about a farmer. Now, this farmer's got a horse. And it's a beautiful horse. Absolutely beautiful horse. Like, makes Black Beauty look like a donkey. That kind of nice horse. Uh, and he uses it to help him plough his fields. And uh, one day... He breaks away from the plough, jumps over the fence, runs off into the forest, and he's gone. So all the farmer's neighbours, they run to him, they say, Oh no, we heard about the horse. That's just terrible luck. And the farmer says, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, we'll see. Anyway, two days later, blisters on his hands because he's been ploughing that field without the horse. His horse comes back followed by 10 other horses that are just as good-looking, just as, as useful for the land, just as, as wonderful. And they, they come into the field, and then well, he's got 10 horses, well, 11, if you count the original one. Maths, people. Stay in school, kids. And then, uh, so his, his neighbours come running, and they say, well, this is amazing, this is, this is incredible luck. And he sends them, he says, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, we'll see. So then, a couple of days later, his son, the farmer's son, is trying to break in these new horses, because obviously they're wild, they need a little bit of breaking in. Um, and while he's doing this, one of the horses rears up, kicks out, breaks the son's leg. All the neighbours come running, running to the, the farmer and say, oh no, we heard about the horse breaking your son's leg, that's terrible news, that's just the worst luck. And the farmer says, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We'll see. About a week later... War breaks out in the com- country. And the army comes through conscripting every able-bodied young man. But obviously, the farmer's son's got a broken leg, so he, he doesn't have to go to war. So all the neighbours come to the farmer and they say, oh, this is, this is amazing luck. And the farmer says, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Who knows? Now, you are expecting a better ending to that story, weren't you? But... There is a lesson to be learned in that. We can't know why things happen the way they do when we are in the middle of it. We don't know what is around the corner, what what, what God's overarching plan is. We just don't know. But, like it says in Romans 8, we can be sure that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So as long as... We are walking according to God's purpose we can be certain that whatever comes at us we will survive God will work it for our good so whatever it is that's going on in our lives no matter how difficult or how great the first thing the most important thing we have to do is look up to God which brings us to the second purpose of the Ebenezer stone. <clears throat> the second purpose was to remind the Israelites to look backwards. You see, when they looked backwards they could see the thread of God throughout their entire life. From, from the day God made a covenant with Abraham to the, the moment they went into slavery to the, the moment they were liberated into the promised land all of that Noah, like every step of the way, God's hand was on the Israelites. No matter how many times they messed it up, God took their mistake, and when they came to repentance, he brought them through it into his purposes. So, that's great. That's great for the Israelites, but what about us? Why do we look back? Because we, we don't have to you know, worry about when our next battle with the Israelites, the Welshes. I'm just saying Welsh Philistines. I'm not saying anything about the Welsh. I'm just saying our neighbouring community. We don't have to worry about our neighbouring community attacking us anytime soon. So so where's the application for us here? Why do we look back? Well, I used to to work in uh, a science lab. I used to to do destructive testing, which sounds way more fun than it it really is. It sounds like it's just me with a hammer breaking stuff, but it's really not. I was sat in a lab on my own, breaking little, little pieces of carbon fibre. Uh, and the reason I did that was so we could figure out what the properties were of it. So I, I would get a piece of, of carbon, I could only test it once before it broke, so we had to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the things. And every time I tested one, it w- the first one, I had no idea what was going to happen. The second one, I thought, okay, that's about the same as the last one. And then, as we got further and further down the line, I knew, it got to a point towards the end of the testing program where I knew when someone handed me this batch, I knew where it was gonna break, I knew how it was gonna break, and I I trusted that I I knew what was gonna happen, and I was confident in that. And towards the end of a testing regime, I was always right, because I'd done it so many times. Um, and it's like that it's like that when we look back over God's influence on our life It's like if if this is me now if I go back (laughs) do you like the sound effect? thanks so I, I didn't trust God as much when I was here as I do when I'm over there because I don't necessarily have the same experience so I learned to trust God here and then here and then here, and then here, until I get to the present, and I look back, and I'm now so confident, because I am remembering every time God has been there in my life. That is the power of testimony. It's not that saying the words out loud make it magic. It's that we are reminding ourselves, and anyone listening, the glory of God how trustworthy he is, how unchanging he is, how magnificent he is. We study the past to inform the present. See, testimony, like I say, it's not just saying words out loud. It's the direct revelation of God's influence and protection and love in our lives. We are so blessed to have the word because we have so much revelation of who God is. But testimony is the personal revelation of God in our lives, in our lives. And it's not something we should keep to ourselves. This is something we should share publicly because it not only builds up me, but it builds up you and it glorifies God. So that's a win-win-win. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a, it's a wonderful thing to do, but it's also, again, it's our duty. It's our duty to declare God's goodness. It says so in the Bible. Jesus himself, as he was walking into, um, into Passion Week, he was coming into Jerusalem, and the people were singing Hosanna, and the Pharisees said, nah, shut up, you lot. And Jesus turns around and says, if they, the people worshipping God, and declaring his goodness, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If, if we, the living stones, the living Ebenezer stones, do not cry out to God, then He'll use the dead ones. He doesn't miss out either way. Something is going to scream His glory, but we miss out if we don't do it. So, the Ebenezer stone was there to, look, to cause people to look up to God, to look back at His influence throughout our lives, and to look forward. See, Joshua installed this stone not just for the guys who were at the battle. In fact, we read a little bit past the point where he put the stone in and we can see there are plenty more battles and they win them. So that stone is there to remind future generations. Look at what God did. That day, when we were outgunned, outmanned out of our own land, God thundered down and gave us victory over a far superior force. By human purposes, we should have been run over. But look what God did. Hitherto the Lord has brought us. He has brought us to this point. Not just to this point, though. The stone wasn't here and no further. God's been with us. Now he's given us this victory. We're on our own. That's that's not what it was. It was there to serve as a reminder that as we move forward, we move forward with God. So this is a pretty important stone. We can agree there, right? Yes? Yay! But, what I will say is this is not the most important stone in the Bible. This is not the most important stone in the Bible. Not even close. It's not the stone that the Ten Commandments were written on. <clears throat> it's not even the stone that was rolled away from Jesus' tomb. That is not the most important stone in the Bible. <clears throat> Let's read about the most important stone in the Bible now. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. <clears throat> Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, A costly cornerstone for the foundation. Firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Acts 4, verses 10 to 12. Let it be known to all of you. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected, quote in Psalm 118 there, by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. That is a cracking piece of scripture. That's the gospel right there. So the cornerstone is Jesus. That is the most important stone in the Bible. Stone as metaphor, obviously. I'm not saying Jesus was made of stone. (laughs) So do we all know what a cornerstone is? I'll explain it anyway. So in Israel, they didn't have tons of wood for building houses. They didn't have loads of different building materials. It was pretty ropey land at times. What they did have was a lot of stones. So when they were building, what they would do is they would look for stones that suited all the different purposes of the house. So you would have a capstone, you would have you know, a lintel over the door, and So someone would would select a stone, and no, that's not not quite right there. So they would reject the stone. But the cornerstone was the most important part. It was the first stone that was laid in any building. Whether it's a temple, a house, or, you know, an outdoor bathroom, it doesn't matter. The first stone that was laid was the cornerstone. And that was so important, because every single measurement of that building was taken from the cornerstone. So if that cornerstone was slightly facing just off to the side, the whole building would be facing off to the side. If it was slightly unlevel, the whole building would be wonky. So every, every single part of that building was made in reference to the cornerstone. Which is why this this particular image is used. Because with Jesus as our cornerstone, every single thing we do must be in reference to Jesus. We have a victory, it is in reference to Jesus. We have a loss, we have heartache, we have pain, it is in reference to Jesus that we deal with that. We look up through Jesus to God. We look back at God's provision, at God bringing us to this point, And we look forward through the lens of Christ into eternal salvation. Like The Israelites with Ebenezer, when they were looking forward, they were looking forward for the rest of their earthly life. We know for sure, through Jesus, we are looking into eternity. We know that because it says so in the Word. The grace afforded by Jesus is the reason we can have a relationship with God. Even though we are filthy with sin, he says, I will make you clean. When we we say we're too tired, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. When we feel we are beyond hope of rescue, he says, my grace is sufficient when we feel trapped and dead in our sin, he says, I have conquered death. I have smashed the grip of sin for all eternity, through my death and resurrection, and now anyone who is in me is a new creation. With Jesus as our cornerstone, we can look back. We can look up, and we can look further forward than anyone dare dream into the presence of God. God. We can look beyond our own mortality. Knowing that we have a helper in the person of the Holy Spirit. Again, Ebenezer, our stone of help. When Jesus left, he said, when I say left, he didn't leave as such, but his body ascended. When he left, he said, I'm leaving a helper. We don't need a stone of help. We have a person of help. We have the Holy Spirit. That's what brings this book alive. Every time we come to this book, we say, Holy Spirit, breathe your life into this word. Speak into me. We have a helper in the Holy Spirit. So whether we're riding high or in the pit of despair, we can say, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We were singing earlier on about the upward call of God in Christ. That's the preach in a nutshell. When we come to difficulties or successes, we don't need to build ourselves up or break ourselves down. We come to God, we sit at the foot of the cross, and we say, Lord, have your way. I believe that you are sovereign over all things, Lord. Lord, I have seen you in my past, and I know my future is secure. God is good. Amen.